Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One Podcast. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast.matan.org.il. Each week we spend 30 minutes speaking about a seminal figure or idea on that week's Parsha. Parshat Shlach's central focus is on the story of the spies, also the topic of today's episode. This life-altering or nation-altering episode is followed by the commandment to separate chala and offer it to the priest, a commandment many of us follow in some form today when we prepare large amounts of bread. We then learn about the fate of the Israelite who gathered trees on Shabbat, and the Parsha ends with a commandment to wear tzitzit. Today I have the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Malka Simkovich, who is the Crown Ryan Chair of Jewish Studies and Director of the Catholic Jewish Studies Program at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. She is a professor of Jewish history who focuses on Second Temple and Rabbinic Judaism. She has authored two books, The Making of Jewish Universalism, From Exile to Alexandria, and Discovering Second Temple Literature, The Scriptures and Stories That Shaped Early Judaism, and numerous articles and lovely blog posts in the Times of Israel. Malka, it's great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. Today we're going to be speaking about the figure of Moshe through the prism of a second temple voice that I don't think much of our audience is familiar with. So I'd love if you would introduce us to Philo. Yes, this is a figure known as Philo of Alexandria. He lived from around 20 BCE to around 50 CE in the vicinity of Egypt, so quite close to Judea, but a world apart culturally. What his angle was, what his influences were, that was such a different world than certainly the world we know today and also the biblical world that came before it. So it really was. And many of us have heard the name Philo of Alexandria, but we sort of write him off as living a very Hellenized version of Judaism, if you could even call it Judaism, somebody who was so enamored with Stoic philosophy and Greek thought that whatever it was that he was practicing is corrupted or maybe inauthentic or very far from what we'll find in the world of the rabbis um, just a few generations later. Uh, and this is simply an incorrect view of Philo. One of the reasons why we sort of write Philo off is because his writings were preserved by the church. And um, the rabbis do not cite Philo. So because he does not have any kind of what we call a Jewish transmission history, and he's not cited by the rabbinic authorities, we tend to assume that Philo does not have an important place in our own tradition of biblical interpretation. But Philo was not only deeply influenced by what you might call traditional Jewish ideas, but he's also very influential among all the hundreds of thousands of Jews who are living in the vicinity of Alexandria in the first century CE. And it's so important to note that these Jews are not Hellenized. In fact, I would argue that there was no binary between Judaism and Hellenism in the first century CE. Just like today, there's no binary between living as an American, right? There's no Americanism that is uh, on one polar, one side of my identity as a person living in the world that's always in uh, tension with my Judaism. So just like you wouldn't ask an American Jew today, are you an American or are you a Jew? A, uh, a Jew living in Egypt in the early first century would have been very confused by the question, are you Hellenized or are you a practicer of Judaism, a practitioner of Judaism? 
And so Philo was one of many hundreds of thousands of Jews who lived outside of Judea in the early first century CE, who was deeply devoted to his ancestral tradition, who observed maybe not rabbinic law the way that we know it, but certainly the main identifying markers of Jewish practice, which would have been Shabbat, holidays, circumcision of the boys, dietary laws, and above all, above all, more important than anything else, is the regular recitation of the scriptures and the interpretation of the scriptures. And Philo is a biblical interpreter par excellence. Yes, he does use allegory and all kinds of hermeneutical tricks that he learned from the Greeks, and he um, uses the tools that are in his toolbox, so to speak. But more important than anything to Philo is to argue for the integrity and the superiority of Jewish tradition to both Jewish and Greek readers. And so it's not simply a matter of arguing for the integrity of Judaism, but in fact, Philo was convinced, and he says so repeatedly, that Judaism is a superior philosophy to whatever it is the Greeks can offer. And so if the Torah is superior and offers all these lessons and values that correlate with Greek teaching, but in fact do so in a superior way, then Moshe is the philosopher par excellence for Philo. And so Philo is going to go out of his way, like the later rabbis, to present the heroes of the Tanakh, but Moshe in particular, as being philosophically perfect, morally um, morally superior, and all around a role model, not only for Jews, but for all of humanity. Malcolm, in a previous episode with Tamar Weissman, we spoke about Josephus and how he actually viewed Aaron. I'm wondering if you could just help us out a little bit, for those who aren't familiar, what the difference is between Philo and Josephus. They're both Second Temple figures, um, but enlighten us to understand better the difference between their perspectives and, and the writings. I would love to talk about Josephus. I have very few subjects that are more exciting to me than the subject of Josephus. <laughs> Josephus also gets a bad reputation among many observant Jewish communities. And I think that all we know, all most of us know about Josephus is that he was a traitor to the Romans. That's actually 100% correct. <laughs> Josephus was a defector. He His years are about 37 to 100 CE. He grows up in a very culturally different context than Philo. With Josephus, you have someone who's really brought up sort of, I I don't like the phrase proto-Rabbinic, but in a very observant, pious, uh, priestly family, or so he claims, uh, in the suburbs of Jerusalem, uh, from a very well-respected, you might say upper-class family. He gets the uh, the best education that a Jewish boy could get, in Judea, he knows Aramaic, he knows his biblical traditions, he knows how to uh, practice as a Jew, and when the war breaks out against the Romans in 66 CE, he is assigned a garrison, a military troop of Jews to lead um, in the north, and he is not given this honorary role, it's actually not just honorary, but this very significant military role. Uh, he's not given it because he has military experience or prowess, but simply because he is a member of the elite. And by all accounts, Josephus is an utter disaster on the battlefield. 
And very famously, in a place called Yodfat, you can go there today in Israel, you will see where his garrison was essentially massacred. The famous story goes that Josephus goes into a cave with some other survivors and they hide there. And there's this famous, you can look up Josephus's mathematical riddle where they all knew in this cave that you cannot commit suicide according to Jewish law. So they decide to all kill each other. But then, of course, when they got to Josephus, Josephus is like, maybe I'll just hang out here and, you know, can't kill myself. Oh, well. Um, Josephus ends up being uh, captured by General Vespasian, who, as we know, is going to become the uh, Roman emperor. And he's taken in chains to Rome, but not before he tells Vespasian, I see prophetically that you are going to become the general. Now, whether Josephus was, sorry, I see that you're going to become an emperor. Now, whether Josephus really had prophecy, whether this really happened, we don't know. But Josephus presents himself sometimes as having some prophetic ability. And Josephus is not one to mitigate his own sense of intelligence and capability. He uh, maybe wasn't so great on the battlefield, but presents himself as quite the genius when necessary. Um, And he spends the bulk of his adult life in Rome. So the works that we have by Josephus were commissioned by the family who supported him. And that, of course, is the Flavian family, that dynasty with Vespasian um, and, and the sons, Titus and Domitian. And so Josephus is a very complicated character, especially because before the war is over, they bring Josephus back to Jerusalem to be a translator for the Romans. So can you imagine being like Josephus's neighbor growing up and like, oh, Josephus, Yosef, you know, such a smart kid. He's going places. He's going to be a teacher of, you know, whatever. He identified with the Pharisees. So he is going to teach us oral law. What a smart guy. You look at those kids sometimes and you know, oh, that kid's going to be a Rebbe. And then Josephus disappears for a few years and then shows up and he's Roman garb, one of, you know, the most detested visuals that um, some a Jew in the first century could even imagine. And so, of course, they resented it greatly. Um, but <clears throat> it would have been very easy for Josephus to write off his Judaism. He was commissioned to write an account of the war, and he could have easily, because he was in Rome, writing on behalf of you know his Roman audience, or maybe it was a Jewish audience, but his paycheck did not come from the Jews. So it could have been very easy for him to blame that war on the Jewish people. And it could have been very easy for him to take little interest in defending the integrity of the Jewish religion. But Josephus always claims to his Jewish identity till the very end of his life. And in fact, he is the first person ever that we know of to produce the first systematic defense of the Jewish religion. And that's called against Appian. So you don't have a genre like that before Josephus. He invents it, right? Defending the Jewish religion, he does it. And that's actually an inconvenience for a Jew uh, who's relatively assimilated, living in Rome. Um, not only that, but he blames the war in large part on the Romans. And so he does take risks. And he's a complicated figure. Um, so in terms of Josephus versus Philo, I would say that they're growing up in very, very different cultural context with different interests. I mean, Philo is a philosopher. Josephus is not. Josephus is a historian. Mm-hmm. Big difference. I say that as a historian. I'm not a philosopher. but Um, You could find overlap in the ways that they are really sensitive towards two cultures, or again, they're not really binaries, but 
Uh, let's just say that for convenience, two cultures that are interacting with each other in complicated ways, sort of these dual identities. And so both of them do have that. They're both struggling to proudly uh, defend the Jewish people, their traditions, their their practices or scriptures, and at the same time, say to the Romans, um, look, we are not a threat to your society. In fact, if you let us in the door, we'll make your society better. Well, you know, these two figures, as you describe them and bring them to life, I really think about the fact that they, if they're more, would be more familiar to our general audience, they are an example uh, of how to function in the diaspora in very turbulent times. And they're two very different examples, as you've, as you've explained, but they could really serve as a, as a paradigm of how one could function uh, in these kinds of worlds where you have these dual loyalties or uh, or different different parts of your religious personality and your civic personality. Why Philo today? Why why are we bringing him into the conversation about, about Moshe and specifically his role in the story of the spies? Well, Philo writes a treatise called On Moses, which, as you might guess, presents Moses as intellectually perfect, the ideal philosopher, the perfect prophet. Um, and when Philo gets to the story of the spies, it's as you can guess, very important to Philo that Moshe does not take the burden of the disaster of what ends up happening. And so Philo presents the project to send spies to the land of Israel as one which belongs to Moshe, but the, the crisis of the manner in which 10 out of 12 of the representatives say, forget it, this land is not conquerable, that has nothing to do with Moshe's decision to send spies to the land of Israel, which according to Moshe was a very wise one. And in fact, the word spy kind of leads us astray because for Philo, this was simply military tactic uh, that God would have approved of because before you go into a space of conflict that you are um, trying to conquer, you have to understand the land. And so that's all that was. Just so that we're all clear on this point, when people were learning or reading Torah in those days, were they reading in the original Hebrew or they would be going straight to Philo's writings or, or another version of Tanakh? How did that work? So that's a great question. If you were a Greek speaker and you were Jewish living in Egypt or in that vicinity of the world, you were very unlikely to have gotten such a good education in Hebrew that you would be reading your Torah in Hebrew. Likely you would have been dependent on what's known as the Septuagint or another translation of the Torah that was circulating in Greek by the end of the Second Temple period. The Septuagint by then had a special status and it was considered the authoritative version, but we do know that there were other Greek versions of the Torah circulating at that time, but it's highly unlikely that a Greek-speaking Jew in Egypt would have been reading the Torah in the original Hebrew. that really gives us a new perspective on how we look at translation in general and people reading Torah in the original text or not the original text. Uh, the Septuagint was a highly authoritative document and in most places it's highly akin to the Torah, but like all translations, it also has a certain degree of commentary. You know, I also think that it's important for us to point out 
that within the Torah, there is a contradiction or a question of sorts regarding how the entire reconnaissance mission of the spies actually gets started. Because in our Parsha, in Parsha Shlach, it only starts off as a command. God commands Moshe, send spies. And then we sort of have this question, why would God command this mission uh, when it perhaps was likely that it would go awry? Um, the question is further strengthened by the fact that in the book of Dvarim, when Moshe recaps what happened, earlier in the desert, he says straight out that the people came to him and asked him to send spies. And so all the commentators on all levels uh, throughout the ages have to struggle with this question of what was the actual sequence of events. Does it make sense that God would get it going? Maybe God had hopes that it would actually go well. There were other reconnaissance missions in, in Tanakh that did not have disastrous outcomes like this one did. But that's a question that everyone has to deal with, including Philo, meaning he is also dealing with that here, trying to figure out what was Moshe's role, did he get it going? And I think it's also interesting to point out that Moshe's role in this mission is similarly questionable in the way that Aaron's role is in the story of Chet Egel and the golden calf. The commentaries struggle with, why did Moshe ask these really detailed questions? Was he setting them up for failure? The Ramban asks this particularly um, what did Moshe sin in this, uh, in this episode? And ultimately, the answer is clear to everybody that he didn't sin because he's punished for a number of things throughout the desert, but he's not punished for his involvement in the story of the spy. And that also really reminds us of Aaron, and we spoke about this on an earlier podcast, where Aaron also is not chastised or criticized, even though his role there seems even more questionable than Moshe's role in the story of the spies. So that's a question that is sort of hanging in the background here of Philo's commentary as well, and like all other commentaries on this section. I think that's absolutely right, because as the intermediary between God and the people, Moshe often represents one or the other and sometimes both. And so in Philo's account, uh, it does seem like it's coming from Moshe, but of course, the possibility is left open that Moshe is instructed to do this by God. And it is presented as a very positive idea, an idea that could have gone very well. And the only reason why 10 out of 12 of the representatives said bad things about the land is because the land was so unusually impressive, so fertile in a way that they had in their lives never seen anything like that before. Of course, remember, they're coming from the desert life and then they go to this lush, beautiful land where everything is so fertile that they just think it's so good. It's so incredible that it's not conquerable for us. And so it's the contrast between the perfection of the land and the insecurity of the people who have been living in the desert and are not equipped or trained to be in a, in a military. Uh, it's that insecurity that leads to the sin. Had they the confidence in the success that, um, that the people would enjoy that Moshe has, then everything would have been fine. So it's not the plan itself. And and the language that Philo uses is so beautiful. He talks about all different kinds of trees. And I'm just reading now. Um, It's girdled by rivers and fountains, abundantly well watered, so that even the foot of the mountain district to the highest summit of the hills, the whole region was covered closely with a network of shady trees. So that's Philo's language. And can you imagine how, again, coming from the desert, just seeing one tree would have been a thing of beauty. But this was totally overwhelming to them. You know, when you read this description of Philo, he presents Moshe as if he is a Greek general of his time. Uh, there's something that sort of always brings a smile to my to my face. Although we do the same thing in our in our times. You know, people will put 
ancient figures in contemporary garb. We we often try and make all of our leaders relatable nowadays. Uh, and the truth is, is that I don't think that Philo was necessarily very off base. Moshe was a general, although I think somehow in today's notion of these figures from Tanakh, we tend to think of them more in their spiritual light than we do in their military light, perhaps because sometimes that can be uncomfortable for some of us morally. But uh, but I think his description here is brilliant um, because he really brings him to life as a very relatable figure that his readers, I'm sure, could see right before their eyes. Well, I think it was quite common in the Second Temple period for biblical interpreters to present Moshe as a general. But gen- I mean, overall, I would say Moshe is the canvas upon which you paint with your brightest strokes, right? So whatever virtues you think are the greatest virtues for a person to have, those are the virtues that Moshe had. And so you might have a writer uh, in the second century BCE who thinks that astrology is terrible and anathema to Judaism. And so therefore, Moshe was a fighter against the study of the stars. Uh, And that's what we find in the book of Jubilees. But for someone like Philo, maybe not. Maybe he is someone who teaches that wisdom. And so um, you have you you have all kinds of opposing representations of Moshe. And that really depends on what the writer is thinking um, one needs to achieve perfect virtue. So for, for Philo, it's both that military perfection, but it's also that intellectual and philosophical perfection. How do we see his characterization of Moshe here or, or in, uh, in another episode? Well, I want to bring you to the first few paragraphs of Philo's treatise on Moshe, where he just has this incredible laundry list of everything that Moshe has ever done. And again, he's not the first person. This is called an encomium in uh, Greek literature. If there was a hero, whether, you know, for Jews, it would have been a biblical hero, but any sort of mythic hero would have had an encomium, which is basically like a speech, which reads like a laundry list of any possible quality you could imagine that the author thinks is good. So in paragraph 20 of this treatise, Philo says, with a modest and serious bearing, Moshe applied himself to hearing and seeing. I'm going to skip a little bit here and there because it's Mm -hmm. quite a long paragraph, but he says, in a short time as a youth, he advanced beyond everyone's capacities. His gift in nature forestalled their instruction. In other words, the teacher said, I can't teach you anymore. you've you've exceeded everything that um, I know. And so I can't, I can't even teach you anymore. Um, And then in the next paragraph, he just lists every, all the disciplines that Moshe had mastered, arithmetic, geometry, the lure of meter, rhythm, harmony, music, right? As shown by the use of instruments or in textbooks and treatises of a more special character, right? Every discipline, every sub-discipline was, and this is interesting, was taught to him by learned Egyptians. I love that. I love that depiction of Moshe in Egypt because you know we also have these questions about what happened to Moshe in his early life and how how did he interact with that culture, and uh, and he presents him here also similar uh, as uh, similar to Daniel, who he also was sort of bred by the um, by the Babylonian courts, uh, and and I really love that image because we really meet Moshe later when he's a shepherd and really very far from those early years of study. And so that's a great image that we have here of Moshe. And you also see maybe a little bit of defensiveness because Philo might know that there are Jews, let's say in Judea, who 
view the Egyptians uh, of their day as the Egyptians of the ancient world, which is to say, not their friends. Mm. And Philo says, no, there were things that we learned that we borrowed from the Egyptians and our greatest heroes learned from the Egyptians. And then Philo continues, and this is where we get a little bit (laughs) ahistorical, that Moses had Greeks to teach him the rest of the school course and the inhabitants of the neighboring countries for Assyrian letters and the Chaldean signs of the heavenly bodies. And this he also acquired from the Egyptians. So like any discipline that you could imagine, uh, Moses, Moshe got it and he got it because he was an open learner. He was receptive to all these different teachers that he had, like you said, in the palace when he was living with Paro. Um, And so Philo continues and he said, even in character, he was perfect. He didn't let the lusts of adolescence go unbridled. Everything was in perfect control. And of course, there, if you know anything about Stoic philosophy, the number one virtue is self-control, moderation, and Moshe has that in spades. And so Moshe is the perfect philosophical figure, the perfect Greek, the perfect Jew, um, and he embodies all this knowledge. What is Philo trying to achieve here by depicting Moshe in this way? Is he worried about him being dwarfed in comparison to other modern figures that his readers were familiar with? I think Philo is very aware that during his time, there were Greeks um, and Romans and Egyptians who were exposed to Jews, who knew about Jews, but who looked down on them and were confused or resentful by practices that they viewed as separatist, or to use a Greek word, misanthropia, that were misanthropic. And beginning in the second century BCE, or even earlier, some of these Egyptians, Greeks, and Romans are accusing the Jewish religion of not only being misanthropic, but also being what is called in Latin a, a barbaros, a foreign entity. So it's called that because bar, 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 bar. It sounds like you're speaking a foreign language. Um, sorry, that's not Latin. That's Greek. Mm-hmm. But the word barbaros is applied to the Jews by Cicero, the mid first century BCE orator and others. And Jews are being accused of not being good team players of all the things that you hear now in public discourse that Jews are not contributing to the society of the good. All of those accusations were around in the first century and Philo was very sensitive to them. And so on the one hand, he wants to instill pride in his Jewish readers so that they know that their scriptural traditions are philosophically um, superior to their Greek neighbors and that, that Jews should feel good about their scriptures and their traditions. And at the same time, that Greeks who are reading Philo, and he was, we know, very well respected in Alexandria and well known, uh, that those Greeks should maybe um, hush <laughs> and question their own biases about Judaism. And so I want to now take you to the very opening words of Moshe's, uh, of the treatise about Moshe that Philo writes. If I understand you correctly, Malka, you're essentially saying that Philo's writings were significant both for the inner Jewish world and for the external, uh, broader world that was surrounding him. And if that's true, I think that that's very unique because when I think about the need to protect or defend our Jewish heroes or writings from the outside, I really think of internal dialogue. I'm thinking of the uh, post-Enlightenment world and the threat of the reform movement. 
figures like Rav Hirsch and the Ketav Kabbalah, where they were writing what sometimes we call apologetic. So they're writing internal defenses, but really aimed at Jews reading them. But the claim you have here about Philo is really unique in that his writing served possibly a dual function. Well, this is an open academic question. And I would say that most academics read Philo as a Jewish writer writing for Jews. I feel strongly that he was sensitive to a diverse audience. And you pick up on that defensiveness so often. Um, I do think that Philo hoped that Greeks and Romans would read his work, whether they did or did not. We are not certain the extent to which he had a wide readership. But again, we know that he was very well respected. We know that he came from an elite family. He had a brother, Tiberius, who was an apostate, a non-observant Jew, who was a very, very high-ranking member of the Roman elite. We know that Tiberius' son, Marcus, married a Hasmonean princess named Berenike, and then he died young. So Philo was part of a very upper-crust elite world, and that world was interacting all the time with Roman power. So I do think that Philo is writing primarily for Jews, but absolutely with the hope that Greeks and Romans will read him. Wow, that's really fascinating. He's really trying to be an ambassador, both internally and externally. So I want to bring you to the opening words of this treatise that Philo wrote about Moshe, because it's so passionate and explicit in its motivation, which here in this case does take, let's say, anachronistically anti-Semites and deals with them head on. So I'm just going to unpack this paragraph. A little bit. So he begins the treatise as follows I propose to write the life of Moses, whom some describe as the legislator of the Jews, right? The law writer. Others as the interpreter. So this is already interesting because Philo is aware of two different attitudes in Egypt about Moshe. Is he the legislator? Does he think of the words and then put them into writing? Or is he receiving them from God and maybe interpreting them? So it's already kind of open and interesting. And then he says, I hope to bring the story of this greatest and most perfect of men to the knowledge of, and here you have to listen closely, who is he bringing the story to? To those, uh, to, to the knowledge of such as deserve not to remain in ignorance of it. For while the fame of the laws which he left behind him has traveled throughout the civilized world and reached the ends of the earth. So everybody knows about our Torah, everybody knows about our traditions, but the man himself, as he really was, is known to few. And so Moshe says, people have heard, sorry, Philo says, people have heard of Moshe, but they don't really know who he was or what he stood for. And in fact, Philo's absolutely correct. There were some quite anti-Jewish stories circulating in the late Second Temple period that made Moshe look very bad. And there, um, there are figures such as Appion, Lysimachus, Manetho, and other clowns, other people who are saying quite terrible things about the Jews and their origins, because in Greek, uh, in, in, in Greek culture, it was so important to have legitimate antiquity, right? Like the older, the better. And origins were very, very important in this culture. And so there were stories circulating about Jews that they worshiped the head of a donkey, that they were leprous and they were kicked out of Egypt, not you know, taken out miraculously, that Moshe was, you know, a thief, a bandit. And so these stories were circulating. We have them. Okay, so he continues. He says, Greek men of letters have refused to treat Moshe as worthy of memory. 
possibly through envy. And when Paolo says that, I think so often of how people talk today, when we talk about anti-Semitism, nobody really knows why there's anti-Semitism. But one of the possibilities is just like, how can this tiny group of people have won so many Nobel Prizes and invented so many things and be so disproportionately accomplished? And look, Philo's saying that in the first century. Mm-hmm. He says, in many cases, the ordinances of the legislators of the different states are opposed to his. So in other cultures, there are laws that are less ethical or even in opposition to what we find in the Torah, which is in Philo's uh, mind superior. And he says, most of these authors have abused the powers which education gave them. In other words, they're writing bad stuff about Moshe. They're abusing their rhetorical talents, right? They're composing in verse, and I'm back to quoting, they're composing in verse or prose comedies and pieces of voluptuous license to their widespread disgrace. They're writing incorrect, terrible things about Moshe and the people of Israel when they should have used their natural gifts to the full on the lessons taught by good men and their lives. And then I skip a few lines and I'll keep quoting. I, Philo says, will disregard their malice and tell the story of Moshe as I have heard it. And this is where it gets really incredible. Philo continues, I will tell the story as I have heard it, both from the sacred books, the wonderful monuments of his wisdom, which he has left behind, and from some of the elders of the nation, for I always interwove what I was told with what I read and thus believes myself to have a closer knowledge than others of his life's history. And this is one of the earliest references we have to an authoritative oral tradition that was transmitted from parent to child in the second temple period. Philo says, I have the story written down, but you know what else I have? I have a tradition that I received orally, and that tradition is as informative and authoritative as the written story that I have before me. And so for Philo, it's absolutely important that he set the record straight. There are stories going around that make Moshe look bad. And these stories are false. And Philo says, I am writing to set the record straight. Now, this does not mean that he's necessarily only writing for Greeks, because very likely the Jews were also reading these stories and getting confused by them and maybe worrying about their own origins. And Philo says, no, I have the correct version. The correct version is that Moshe was a perfect philosopher and leader. Throughout this whole episode, I've been sort of thinking with myself, I wonder what initially brought her to study these texts? Uh, what drew you to them? So I don't know what initially drew you to them, but I do understand now even more so why you you keep them in your company. And I wish that people did read them because this is part of our tradition and I am here to bring it back to you um, because personally, and um, I, I say this in all sincerity, these texts strengthen my faith in a very deep and profound way, and I think that they can for others as well. I really want to thank you for this conversation and for bringing us into this lesser-known world. Uh, it's been really eye-opening. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.